Hey, how are you guys? Good. Okay, there we go. All right, I'm glad you guys are all here. We're going to be celebrating baptisms, as you heard, so I'm very excited about that. My name's Carter, and I'm one of the pastors here at Redemption Church. If we haven't met, I just want to say a welcome to you, especially if you're new with us. We're so thankful that you're here. We're going to be in 1 Peter chapter 2 today, if you want to turn there or find it on your device. And I had some very important feedback from a concerned member this, this weekend uh, who, who said that she really wants the title of the sermon so that she can write it in her notes, okay? So I'm giving you the title today to make sure that you have it as we get into our scripture for today so that you can write that in your notes and make sure that you take those notes the, way, the exact way that you want to. So not that the title is that important, but there it is for those of you note takers, all right? We're continuing our vision series this week that we started last week. We talked about our core value of keeping the gospel central. And if you recall, we have four core values here as a church. Staying centered on the gospel, showing hospitality toward the culture, building authentic community among believers, and then mobilizing leaders to multiply disciples. And each sermon in this series is going to tackle one of those four core values. So last week we talked about staying centered on the gospel. And remember, the focus for us in that is to what? Keep our eyes on what? Keep our eyes on eternity. Thank you. There it is. All year as a church, we're going to keep our eyes on eternity. That's going to be our focus from now on for 2024 because of the hope that we have in Jesus, it affects how we live right now, right? And so that's going to show up in our lives in three big ways. How we relate to outsiders through hospitality, how we relate to one another as we build authentic community, and how we relate in the mission as we share the gospel with others and mobilize you all to go out and live on mission, so there's a plan behind it all, as you can see it all. There's a method to the madness here, which means today we're talking about how we relate to outsiders with hospitality. And we'll see from the text that it has to do with belonging. That's what hospitality is all about. Because of who we belong to, we can invite others to belong with us. That's what hospitality is. That's what we do when we demonstrate hospitality. So our main point for today, if you're taking notes and you want to write this down, is we belong to Jesus, so we invite others to belong to Jesus with us. We belong to Jesus, so we're inviting others to belong to Jesus. Now, I know we talk about hospitality in certain ways in our culture. You know, we, maybe we often think of Southern hospitality since we're here in Virginia. We think Southern hospitality is what hospitality actually is. It's hospitality. It's making sure that we get everything right and make sure people feel comfortable more than it is about making sure they feel like they belong. So we think we have to make sure the house is clean and make sure the food is good and make sure we smile and say things that are polite even if we don't mean them. You know, that's Southern hospitality. Have you guys ever seen this video of a guy who's dressed up like a mom and he's running around the house talking about how company's coming and so he's making sure that everything's clean and everything's done. He's got this vacuum he's carrying around on his back and, you know, he's running around shouting, I want this place looking like Disney on ice in one minute. Have you guys seen this? If you haven't made your bed, throw it away. It's too late now, you know. <laughs> Company's coming, you got to get rid of the couches, get rid of the couches. We can't let people know we sit, you know. Have you seen this? The chairs need to be pushed in. There can't be any sign of living in this household. Got to make sure it's right for everybody. And then he throws up the vacuum and he gives this primal scream, ah, you know. It's like that's, that's hospitality in our mind. And maybe you get that picture in your mind. If you didn't before, I hope you do now. That's your picture of hospitality, so you're welcome for that. But that's the kind of hospitality that we might think of, that's not the kind of hospitality we see in the Bible. That's not what hospitality is to God. It's different in the Bible. It's not about building a front. It's about building a friendship. It's not about appearing a certain way. 
but about belonging to a certain person and people. We belong to Jesus. We belong to Jesus' family. So we want to invite others into that with us. We want to invite them to belong. Now, I'm very aware that oftentimes we're inviting people into something that they don't want or at least don't think that they need. You know, I mean, I've told you this before. My neighbor told me he didn't want to go to church and he never, he was not interested in it. So not to ask him again. Okay, so I was inviting him. He didn't want it. I I totally get that. People are going to be like that. But knowing that some people won't want what we're offering doesn't mean that we withhold the invitation from them, right? Or that we take a different approach than inviting. Because you know there's a difference between simply preaching at someone versus inviting them in. There's a difference there. You can deliver information about Jesus without actually inviting someone into a relationship with him. How many times have you heard Christians just preach at someone? Maybe, that, maybe you've done that. I know that I've been guilty of doing that before, especially to my kids. It's the easiest ones to preach to, right? Maybe you've done that in your life. It seems like, especially in a major election year, though, like 2024, I'm just preparing you now for that. That's the year that we're in. If we want to stand out as Christians who follow Jesus, rather than following our angry emotions or a a specific political party line, then we might need to heed Peter's letter today. Because he's going to tell us how to remember who we belong to so that it will affect what we believe and how we behave so that we can invite others in, not preach at them. Does that make sense? Let's read this together here in in 1 Peter chapter 2. As we go through, we're going to structure our time with three big concepts today, okay? Belonging, believing, and behaving. These are kind of like the formula for being hospitable. That's kind of what we see throughout the text. So we're going to be chapter 2 here, starting in verse 1. This is what Peter wrote. Therefore, rid yourselves of all malice, all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and all slander. Like newborn infants, desire the pure spiritual milk of the word, so that by it you may grow up into your salvation. If you've tasted that the Lord is good... As you've, become to, excuse me, as you've come to him, a living stone, rejected by people but chosen and honored by God, you yourselves as living stones, a spiritual house, are being built up to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. All right, now before we read the rest of this, let's just get what Peter's saying here, okay? And remember last week, eyes on eternity, right? Centered on the gospel. We need to remember whose we are, And he says here, we're living stones being built up into this spiritual house where God himself, the God of the universe, will reside in us. So we belong to Jesus. That's what he's saying. So because of whose we are, and because of what we believe about the gospel, then it's going to affect how we live. So let's start by talking about behavior and behaving. Okay, that's where we're going to start. I want to kind of switch it around here. We're not going to talk about belonging yet. Let's go, we're going to talk about all three, belonging, belief, and behavior, but let's go backwards and start with our behavior, because that's kind of where Peter starts here. Now, I heard uh, Pastor Alistair Begg say, say it kind of like this, belonging affects belief, and belief affects behavior. Okay, Belonging affects your belief, and belief affects your behavior. Who you belong to informs what you believe, and then what you believe informs how you behave. So if we belong to Jesus and we believe that our true life and future inheritance from chapter 1 that we talked about last week is in him, then it's going to change how we act. Now, royalty is a great example of this if you, if you ever follow the royal family over in England. Now, I don't really and I don't care for royalty because I'm an American, okay? And, you know, we threw off the tyranny of monarchism, you know, 250 or so years ago. So that's just me. But if you look at the royal family and you follow them or whatever... 
Maybe you think about what happened to uh, Meghan and Harry, for example. You know, they, they wanted to leave the royal life behind. Good for them. That's what I say. We're Americans, right? Welcome them in. Leave that stuff behind. But because they no longer have those expectations of a royal family, they don't have to act like royalty anymore, right? Because there's this whole thing, maybe if you've watched The Crown, I know I'm not, it doesn't make me an expert, but I've watched it with Tamara before. And, uh, you know, Queen Elizabeth's sister, Anne, she, there, there was a whole thing back in the 60s because she didn't really act like royalty was supposed to act. And that's how Meghan and Harry were here, too. They're not acting that way, so they're not... That's how Princess Diana was, too. They, they kicked her out of the royal family, basically. She didn't want to be it anymore. So there are these expectations when you're in the royal family that you act like royalty. And then when you leave that, you don't have to act like royalty anymore. Those behaviors aren't required of you. So Peter is starting this section by listing off some behaviors that are required of Christians. If we belong to the royal nation of priests that Peter's talking about here, then we have to behave certain ways. We have to put away some behaviors is how he actually starts with some negative things. He says when you trust in Jesus, you've got to put away malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, slander. It's not an exhaustive list, but it's a very informative list, I think. Because let me ask you this, and I'm not trying to stir up too much trouble, but doesn't it seem like on this list in particular, you've probably seen Christians act like all of these you got, have you ever seen a Christian act like this? I'm not trying to put down every Christian in America. But listen, I've interacted with many Christians, quote, Christians, who've acted these ways. I mean, how many Christians do you know who, rather than love those who persecute and disagree with them, act maliciously toward those who persecute and disagree with them? They don't invite, they attack. Rather than suffer like Peter's going to talk about here and suffer well, they don't want to suffer. So they get angry about it, and they go on the att attack and offensive. How many Christians do you know who act like hypocrites by saying that we're supposed to be like Jesus, but then living in a very unloving and un-Jesus-like way? Or how many do you know who envy the power structures of this world so much that their hope is in who the next president will be rather than when King Jesus will return? I hope that one gets us where we're at right now today. Or who, who slander people on social media over secondary and tertiary theological issues? I mean, unfortunately, I could go on, right? But that's, I mean, how many, how many Christians have we seen that do this? Maybe we've even participated ourselves. See, what these behaviors do is they create division and alienation rather than belonging. That's why Peter's saying, put them away. So guys, this is what we want to do as a church. We want to set ourselves apart here from, you know, so-called Christians in our city who claim Christ but live a totally Christless life. We, we're not going to be that here. Because at our church, we don't want to foster a country club kind of Christianity. We're not just about making sure we appear a certain way. We don't want to just appear super holy and act like we're better than everybody else. What we want to do is bring people in so that they see that they can belong to Jesus. We want to bring them into this broken mess that we call a family here, you know? Try to grow in grace and mercy together. Just as Jesus has shown us grace and mercy. You know, we belong to Jesus, so we want to invite others to belong with us which means we need to rid ourselves of these kind of ugly things, these ugly behaviors from verse 1. But how do we do that? Okay, well, here's the second thing for today. It talks, it's about how we, what we believe. So believe is the second thing that you can write down. See, Peter tells us to feed on God's word here, like newborn infants desiring pure milk, you know? Because what we believe must be informed by God if we follow him. So it's got to be informed by God's word. This is how we taste and see that he's good, he says here. 
We gotta feed on the word. Feed on what God has revealed to us about who he is and how he saved us and how he's brought us in so that we can belong to him. So you can write this down. We're to feed on God's word with intensity. Feed on God's word with intensity. That will inform and transform what we believe. I, I love that he uses the picture of a newborn baby craving milk. Maybe you guys have, have seen what a newborn baby looks like when they are in desperate need of food. You know, I mean, have you ever seen a newborn crying, screaming, doing whatever? I, I, think, I think they would try to kill you if they had the faculties to do that just to get the food, right? Because it's like they're, they're starving. It's like they, we haven't fed them in days, you know? And they, they, it's so dramatic when they finally get the milk. It's just, oh my gosh, they needed that so bad. It was the, be- the only thing that they needed in their life, right? It's just such an appetite. It's insatiable. It's so intense. And I think he uses that so that we can see that we need to have that same intensity because he tells us to feed on God's word like a newborn child having milk. Got to have that appetite. Got to have that intensity because it's our life. You know, I mean, Deuteronomy 32, Moses says, these instructions are not empty words. They are your life. God's word is our life. Do you feel that way about the Bible in your life? Is, is the Bible your very life? Do you have this kind of insatiable appetite for it? It's, it's one reason fasting, I think, is such an important part of prayer. Why we're doing it in our 21 days of prayer and fasting is because we need to take moments to tell God, hey, I'm symbolically giving up this food because I need your sustenance more than I need physical food in my life. I need your word. I need your presence. I need your provision more than I even need food right now. And so we give up food for a brief period of time to symbolically pray and talk to God and ask him to move in and through us. So I hope you'll participate in our 21 days of prayer with us. Even if you're just visiting for baptism, we'd love for you to do that and pray with us as a church. We have a guide online for you for that if you haven't seen that online. But Peter says we can grow up and mature in our faith when we do this. If we have this kind of appetite, then we'll grow up and be mature in our faith. We talked about this a lot last year, so I won't belabor this. We have a growth strategy here. Five Gs, you remember them? Gospel, gather, groups, give, go. That's how we grow up in the faith. This is what it looks like. If we do these five things, especially generally kind of speaking in that order, then you're going to mature in your faith. So I'd recommend listening to that message series if you uh, weren't here for that last year. But that's why we start with the gospel, because we've got to feed on God's word. We've got to remember what he's done for us. We've got to know that we belong first. We've got to remember that. So you've got to start there with his word Because according to Acts chapter 2, where we get our five G's from, it's not optional for the believer. If you belong to Jesus, then you got to know. you got to believe the right things, and you got to be feeding yourself with his word so that you will believe what he wants us to believe. All right, let's go on to verse 6. Peter says, For it stands in Scripture, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and honored cornerstone. The one who believes in him will never be put to shame. So honor will come to you who believe... But for the unbelieving, the stone that the builders rejected, this one has become the cornerstone and a stone to stumble over and a rock to trip over. See, Jesus is that rock that people either build their lives on as the cornerstone or the one that they stumble over and they fall because they reject him. They stumble because they disobey the word, he says here. They were destined for this. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, so that you may proclaim the praises of the one who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. 
You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Dear friends, I urge you as strangers and exiles, as we talked about last week, there's that same word again, to abstain from sinful desires that wage war against the soul. Conduct yourselves honorably among the Gentiles so that when they slander you as evildoers, they will observe your good works and will glorify God on the day that he visits. Man, notice all the language that Peter's using here. It's very inclusive to Israel, right? He uses Old Testament language that describes Israel, God's people in the Old Testament. What's up with that? Well, it's very clear what Peter is saying here. He's saying that those who put their hope in Jesus now, they behave the way that Israel's supposed to behave, as exiles, like we talked about last week. And it's because they believe in Jesus as the cornerstone of their lives that they are now a part of God's people. They are the holy nation if they have faith. They are the royal priesthood. They are God's people for his own possession. So it's not limited to one nation or ethnicity or culture. God's people includes all nations and all ethnicities and all cultures who are willing to put their faith in him. You know what we call that today? The church. That's what we call that. So you can write it this way. God's people are the church. God's people are the church. Those who follow Jesus now and have followed him throughout history over the world, all over the world, over all time. So that's the universal church, we call it. Anybody who's chosen and been called out of darkness into God's marvelous light and has received his mercy, as Peter says here. That's the church. So guys, that does mean that the geopolitical nation of Israel over in the Middle East today, that doesn't represent God's people any more than the United States of America does, or England does, or Turkey does, or any other geopolitical country. I know it seems like a common misconception for people in the church today. I'm not sure why, though, if you read your Bible. Because God tells us very clearly in the New Testament who God's people is. It's those who have faith. Just go read Romans, read Galatians, read Hebrews, read 1 Peter. It's not just in one place. Just because somebody's Jewish doesn't make them God's people. And it never has. Listen to what Paul says in Galatians 3 to explain this about being a child of Abraham. It's through faith. He says, The real children of Abraham, then, are those who put their faith in God. What's more, the scriptures looked forward to this time when God would make the Gentiles right in his sight because of their faith. God proclaimed the good news to Abraham long ago when he said, All nations will be blessed through you. So all who put their faith in Christ share the same blessing Abraham received. Because of what? His Jewishness? No, because of his faith. So Paul was saying it's always been that way. Abraham was blessed by God to be a blessing to all the people of the world. And throughout Old Testament history, anybody who would worship God and put their faith in the God of Abraham would be included in the community of God's people. By what? By their ethnicity? No. By their faith. You have to belong to Jesus, and you belong to Jesus by faith. Now Jesus is revealed as the cornerstone of worshiping God, so we can see this clearly. You know, It's the mystery that's been revealed, Paul would call it in Ephesians and in Romans, and it's to save the world by sending Jesus to show us that we can belong now as Gentiles. We can belong by faith. So let's discuss what it means to belong. That's the third thing we'll talk about today. Anybody who believes in Jesus is chosen and receives his mercy, Peter says here, we can belong. We belong to what? Priesthood and a royal nation, right? He says, you're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his possession, so that you may proclaim the praises of the one who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. 
You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. It's very interesting to read Peter's language here, especially if you're kind of a hardcore Calvinist. I'm just going after it all today, okay? We're just going after it all. If you don't know what Calvinism is, it doesn't really matter that much. It's just a philosophical way to try to describe how salvation works, you know? You can look it up later if you're curious about it, or you can talk to me afterward. But I want to point out that both concepts are here. Being chosen and receiving mercy. That's what Peter says. That's his exact language. And that's important. The Bible is all about balance. Finding that middle way. We talk about that a lot here. So let's try not to make the Bible say something it doesn't. We're both chosen and we have to receive God's mercy. As in we have to accept it and put our hope in him. Yeah, he's chosen us. But we also have to choose. It's both God's choice and our choice. At least according to what we read in the scriptures here. Very interesting. I think that's important to point out. But I do just want to make sure that you understand the significance here. Don't walk out on me, okay? I'm not done yet. If you're a Calvinist, don't walk out. Just listen to what he says here. Because I want you to understand the significance. Peter is saying that we can belong to God's people because of what Jesus has done. And that touches the longing of our heart to belong. God wants us to belong. We want to belong. And God wants us to belong. The interesting thing is we all need to feel like we belong to some, something. Something beyond ourselves. It's even one of Maslow's hierarchy of needs in psychology, you know? We have this sense of belonging. If we can have a sense of belonging, then that means we can have a sense of significance in our lives, a sense of purpose, a sense of meaning. We need to feel like we can belong. You know, I, I attribute my um, incredible American tattoo to that on my arm. If you guys don't know me, I have an American tattoo on my arm. I'd show it to you if you weren't wearing long sleeves right now. I won't. Maybe I can show you later. Um, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's an eagle ripping through my skin with an American flag underneath. It's as American as you can possibly get, okay? Uh, it's pretty incredible. But the reason I got it is because at the time, the only meaningful significance I could find was belonging to something greater than myself, namely being an American. And so when I got the tattoo, that's what I was thinking. I wanted to belong to something greater. Now, I'm not an advocate for tattoos, okay? That's, I'm just telling you how it was in my life when I was 18 years old and I got the tattoo, Okay? But since then, I've found that I belong to something greater. I don't just belong to the United States of America, which is awesome. I love it. Love living here. But there's something even greater than being an American. And it's being a royal priesthood, a chosen race, a holy nation that's God's own possession. See, the problem is we don't want to belong to God. We want to be free of him. And that's why I've told you I dog the American dream all the time because that's usually what the American dream is telling us. We need to be free of everything else so that we can make our own way. See, we don't want to belong to God. We've rejected our relationship with him and we have essentially told him that we'd rather make our own identity and make our own way in this world than follow his way and be, be given his identity. And God has told us over and over again if we simply follow his way, then it'll go better for us. And if we don't, it's going to go badly, whether it's badly now in this life or whether it's badly in eternity. And that makes sense, you know, because God, God, if he's the author of life, if he's the maker of all things, and he tells us to live a certain way, that will lead to life. And when we reject that way, it will naturally lead to death. It has to, logically. And we don't think we're doing that by choosing our own way, but we are. And that's part of the problem. We're saying that we know better than God and we want to be our own God over our life. Yet we continue to choose and ignore him. We continue to go our own way every day. We don't want to belong to him. We want to be free from him. That's why he has to be the initiator and author of our faith. That's why he has to choose us first. See, there is an order. That's why I told you to stick with me, Calvinists. 
because there's certainly an order here. We do have to receive and respond. Like, God's not going to force us to believe, and yet he has to step in. He has to choose us. He has to be the initiator. That's what Peter is talking about here. Because, see, we're dead in our trespasses. We're, We're dead in our sins against God. That means we cannot save ourselves. Maybe you've heard this before if you've been in church, but, you know, he can't just throw us the life raft and we grab onto it so that he can save us out of the water, right? It's not just that we're drowning and we need help. It's that we were dead in the water. And he had to pull us out and revive us and give us completely new life. That's what it means to be dead in your sins. You cannot save yourself. I cannot save myself. God has to do that from the inside out. He has to be willing to give us that new life and that new inheritance that we talked about last week. It's all initiated by God. That's why he sent Jesus into the world for us, is to save us. So you can write this down. Jesus is the way that we belong to God. Jesus is the way. He's the way, the truth, and the life, right? It's only because of what he's done for us and then applied to us that we can be brought in and belong to God's people. See, Jesus belonged to the Father and the Father belonged to him, yet he left heaven and came down to earth as a human being to live with us and to belong to the human race so that he could live that life that we should live but never will. He became one of us so that he could take our place. And then he died the death that we deserve for rejecting God's way that leads to life. And once he died, three days later, he rose from the dead so that we could have eternal life with him. We could have that inheritance that we talked about last week, the inheritance that he gives us freely, but we don't deserve. And he rose from the dead so that one day we can raise from the dead with him. See, Jesus made a way. He is the way that we can be brought into a relationship with God, our Father. So now when God sees Jesus and Jesus has chosen us and he's applied his perfect life and sacrificial death and resurrection to us, God sees perfection. He sees his son. Jesus is mediating for us on behalf of God and us. He's the mediator. So that means that he's the high priest. Isn't that interesting how Peter uses that language for us here, though? He calls us a royal priesthood and a holy nation and God's own special possession because Jesus is the great high priest and he's the true and holy nation and he's actually the true Israel. When we put our faith in him, we become a part of that. That's what makes us God's people. That's what makes us true Israel. That's what makes us a child of Abraham by faith is because Jesus is all of those things for us. He's the fulfillment. He's true Israel. He's the high priest. And when we're in him, we get to participate in the mission with him. That's the language that we use here all the time. Because what do priests do? They mediate. They mediate. We belong to Jesus, so now we invite others to belong with us. Listen to the rest of the text today, and let's go on here. Verse 13, this is, we'll read to 17. It says, Who then will harm you if you're devoted to what is good. But even if you should suffer for righteousness, you're blessed. Do not fear them or be intimidated, but in your hearts regard Christ the Lord as holy, ready at any time to give a defense to anyone who asks for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do this with what? Anger, malice, slander? No, no, no. Yet do this with gentleness and reverence, keeping a clear conscience, so that when you are accused, those who disparage your good conduct in Christ will be put to shame. For it's better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. 
And that's where we'll stop for today. See, Peter's saying, let your behavior specifically toward outsiders and unbelievers be honorable, be gentle, be persuasive, so that they're going to see your behavior and how you live and be intrigued by that and possibly become believers themselves. See, that's hospitality. You're like, where's hospitality been? This is it, okay? We've been building up to it. It's hospitality. It's bringing people in. We want people to know that they can belong to Jesus because we've tasted and seen ourselves how good it is, and we want them to belong. So you could say this if you're taking notes. You can write this down. Our behavior can impact someone else's eternity. Our behavior can impact someone else's eternity. That's what Peter's saying here. And you're thinking, man, that's pretty heavy. That's a lot of responsibility. If you're thinking that, you'd be right. That's true. God has made us his hands and his feet, though. He's made us his face and his voice. He's made us his tangible presence in the world. That's essentially what a priest is. It's a mediator. Somebody who's a representative. Paul calls us ambassadors in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. It's a very similar concept to what Peter's saying here about us being priests. See, we're vessels set apart for a specific purpose. Not for pretentiousness, but for the purpose of sharing the gospel. So we have to take even the way that we communicate and relate to others as an important part. We've got to take that into consideration as we seek to live and represent Jesus to the people around us. How could we not? How could our belonging and our belief not affect our behavior? I don't want to create a false dichotomy here, though. I don't think Peter does. We can and should share the truth. We have to. We have to do that. It's part of mediating, is it not? God's revealed the truth in his word. That's why we've got to feed on it so that we know it. We've got to be ready to share that truth, Peter says here, to give a defense, as he says. That's mediation. We're representing the way, the truth, and the life. No doubt about that. But I don't think that's part of the problem for most of us. Sharing the truth we can do. At least in, in our stream of Christianity, I don't think that's the problem. In our stream of Christianity, I think the problem is how we share the truth. Peter puts it in the context of suffering here. And he says, even if you suffer for following Jesus and for doing what's good, be ready at any time to give a defense and a reason for the hope that's within you. And do it with gentleness and reverence. So let's break this down for a second. Let's talk about the defense Peter says we don't have to give apologetics or philosophical answers here. He's not saying we have to give a, a logical, reasonable defense here. What he's saying is that you simply need to share your story. So you can write that down by way of application for us. Share your story as a believer. Share your story. That's all he means here. Who you belong to and what you believe and how you behave should all be intriguing to the people around you. Now, if they're not intriguing to the people around you, then you got a problem that you can look at and say, why am I not intriguing to those around me? Why are people not asking me what's different about me? But if you are being intriguing in all three of those things, who you belong to, what you believe, and how you behave, that means if somebody brings up a philosophical or a theological question that's keeping them from believing in Jesus, you still don't have to give a philosophical or theological answer. All you need to do is share your story. That's what it means to give a defense because you know what you know. Primarily, you can share your story in these moments. Let me give you an example. Somebody might come up with the problem of pain and suffering. That's the biggest reason people don't believe in God, right? And they might ask you why a good God would allow pain and suffering in the world. You don't have to give them a logical reason behind that, although you can. I'm not saying it's wrong to, but I think it's very powerful to share with them your story. 
And say something like, well, I don't really know why God allows suffering and evil in the world. I hate that he does. Something I'm not crazy about either. But I do know that in my own story, I've experienced his presence and his love with me in the midst of my own suffering. That's a defense that you can't argue with, right? You're sharing your story about what God's done for you because you belong to him. Somebody else could find miracles hard to believe, for example. So they discount Jesus' resurrection. Couldn't have happened. Miracles are impossible, right? And you don't have to give a logical, reasonable defense. You can just say, well, I don't know everything the Bible says about miracles. I know they're hard to believe. I know they're supposed to be special, right? That's what a miracle is. It's, it's not normal. But anyway, I just know that it's a miracle that he saved me and changed my heart because I know that I was a certain way in my life before I met Jesus, and now I'm totally different. That's a miracle. And he's done that in my own story, right? You're just giving a defense. You're telling people what God's done for you and, and why you belong. That's all you have to do. That's what Peter's talking about with the defense. But let's end our time talking about the gentleness and reverence because I think this is, this is part of the issue for us. This is the crux of the problem for being honest with ourselves. We see the culture moving further and further away from Christian morality. That's, that's something to lament. I'm not saying it's not. But, but usually what that does is it scares us and it makes us lash out in anger rather than weep and mourn and lament and then suffer the way that Peter's talking about here. Because that's what he's calling us to. He's calling us to suffering. He's not saying don't stand up and tell the truth. He's saying you're going to suffer when you do that with gentleness and reverence. Got to be prepared for that. So I want you to write this down. Don't negate the beauty of the gospel by sharing it in an ugly way. That's all Peter's getting at here when he says that. We have this beautiful truth, this beautiful message that somebody can belong to God and know him personally and be known by the God of the universe, and then we negate it by being ugly, tactless, angry at our culture who doesn't believe and we expect them to? No. That, may that never be us. He's saying that suffering for delivering the, tru delivering the truth in an ugly way, that's kind of justified because that's doing evil. He says when you do evil and you suffer, that's justified. We get that. When you take a stand against the culture in a malicious or an angry or an envious or a slanderous way, and you're doing evil because you're negating the very message of love that you say that you're sharing. So God commands us to give our story with gentleness and reverence. I think we all get the idea of gentleness, right? Yeah, I mean, gentleness is pretty, pretty self-explanatory. Don't be harsh. Speak the truth, but do it in love and a gentle way. Your goal isn't to beat people down with the truth. It's to build them up with the truth. If you're speaking the truth and it's beating somebody down, you're not doing it right. Truth builds up. That's what truth, especially the gospel, it builds up. But what does he mean by reverence here? Well, I think this might be what we've lost, perhaps. Because reverence reminds us of something very important. See, reverence is a deep respect. We see the honor in what God is calling us to do here because... We're the royal priesthood. We're representing him, the God of the universe. We are his ambassador. We're representing the God of the universe to the world? Oh my. We need to take a step back for a second and consider what an honor that really is. How has he called us in to this mission with him to participate? What a beautiful, undeserving thing. It's reverence. But I think we also need to have reverence for who we're sharing it with, right? Because these are fellow image bearers that are just as valuable to God as you and I are. We have to have reverence for who we're sharing the truth to. 
They're not just some project or some person or some witch or some pagan. I know. I mean, if you're not from Roanoke, they're here. Or some person who's a Democrat and an idiot or some person who's a Republican, a hardcore right-wing left, you know. We label people with all these things, but that is irreverent, guys. We've got to have reverence for who we're sharing with. Don't negate the beauty of the gospel by sharing it in an ugly way. I heard a pastor named Craig Rochelle ask it like this on his podcast this week as I was listening to it. He said, do you want to make a point or do you want to make a difference? I think that's powerful. And I think that's what I want you to walk away with today as you reflect on what Peter's talking about here. Do you want to make a point or do you want to make a difference in somebody's life? That's why we have such a big vision here as a church over the next five years because we want to make a difference. You know, if you weren't here last week, I laid out five-year vision for us as a church. We want to see 1,000 people in our seats so that we can see 500 people saved, so that we can see 50 people sent out all over the next five years. Now, that sounds like a lot, and it is, but I just want you to remind, I want to remind you of this. 1,000 people is only 1% of the population of our city here in Roanoke. Just 1%. That means 500 people is only half a percent. We just want to move the needle half a percent here for the kingdom. Come on. Is that not a big enough vision? Let's do it, right? And then we want to send disciples out to make more disciples all over the world. Sounds like a lot, but I I just think think God deserves way more than that. I think God deserves so much more. But we've got to start somewhere. And for us, this is our vision over the next five years is to see this happen. We want to be a sending church. We believe God's plan A for the world is the local church, God's people. There's no plan B but us. And so we want to be a mobilizing church and send people out so we can see salvations here and all across the world. So by the end of this year, we're praying for and hoping for 250 people in our seats and 20 salvations and five people sent. At the very least, that's what we're praying and hoping for. That means some of you guys got to catch that vision and be the sent ones. That means some of you guys got to catch the vision and be sharing this invitation that we're talking about today with others around you so that they can be saved. That's what it means. We got to own this vision ourselves. These are big goals, but it'll only happen if we're willing to prepare the jars. Now, we had a sermon back in the fall about this. God's the one who does the miracle. He's the one who saves. He's the one who will build the church if he will. But we got to be willing to prepare the jars for this. That's why we're starting with 21 days of prayer and fasting. It's part of preparing the jars. But it's also starting to live out this gospel message. We want to keep our eyes on eternity, stay gospel-centered. Yes, but we've got to show hospitality. We've got to tell people they belong, even if it means suffering for us, even if it means being ostracized, even if it means being made fun of, even if it means losing our job. It doesn't matter. We've got to be willing to do this because it's what God calls us into if we're a royal priesthood and a holy nation. If we've been chosen by him, this is who we are. So you got to ask yourself these reflective questions. Do you want to make a point? Do you want to make a difference? How are you speaking on social media? That's the first thing I would say in our culture today. Are there any posts you need to go back through and take down and apologize for even outwardly? I don't know. I'm just giving you some suggestions here. Are you making points? Are you making a difference there? How are you talking to your neighbors about the upcoming election that we have this year? How are you thinking about that? Maybe you're not even talking to anybody at all. Are you even talking to your neighbors? Are you even trying to share Jesus' love with them, make them feel Jesus' love through you? How are you prepared to share your story? Are you preparing to share your story in a defensive way? 
Are you preparing to do it in a way that's gentle and reverent? Man, if we don't do these things, then we certainly won't see God move this year in our church. We won't see this vision realized. We've got to understand that it's up to us. Like the mantle has to be passed on to us. How do you think it got to us in the first place? It's because somebody was willing to tell us that we belong. That's what we got to do, guys. That's the life of a Christian, showing hospitality in this way. And we got to be willing to participate with God. So I want to call you to make a difference this week. You belong to Jesus, so invite others to belong with you. That's true hospitality. And listen, if you're here today and you're not a member of God's family, if you're not one of God's people and you don't feel like you belong yet, you can. I want to tell you, you can. Maybe you're listening online. Maybe you're here in person. I don't know. But you can belong. You just have to believe today in who he is. And that will change your behaviors over time. It doesn't mean you have to be perfect immediately. But it starts with understanding that you can belong to him. He wants you to belong. He wants you. That's why he sent Jesus into the world to live for you, to die for you in your place so that you can belong to him. So I, I trust that he's working in your heart. If you're here, I would call you to believe today. And for others of you, let me speak to you here. If you're ready to belong, or maybe you just made a statement to someone or to somewhere where else here, you made a statement that you say, I want to belong to Jesus, or I believe in Jesus now for the very first time. That's what we're doing with baptisms here. Because baptism is a symbol of us saying that out loud to the world, saying, I now belong to Jesus. I put my faith in him. I know I'm chosen by God. I want to follow him. I've received his mercy, and now I'm sharing it with the world. That's what baptisms do. They're this outward symbol of an inward reality that we've been changed by God. And now we're willing to walk in a new way. We belong. We believe the right things now about who he is and who we are. And we're willing to behave in a different way. And that's what baptism does. It's that first step of behaving the way that God calls us to. It's our first step of obedience is what we call it here. When you believe, then you need to get baptized. That's your very first step of obedience in following Jesus. And so when you believe in who you, you are now, you belong to God's people, it changes your behavior and you behave in such a way that you show the world through baptism. There's no prerequisite according to the Bible for baptism except for belief. That's all it takes. Usually throughout the New Testament, all we see is somebody believing and then getting baptized. Believing, getting baptized. I mean, I just read the story of the Ethiopian eunuch a couple of days ago. This is what he said. He, he, he said, explain to me Isaiah. And Philip said, okay, it's about Jesus. This guy named Jesus, you can believe in him today. And the Ethiopian eunuch says, I do believe. What's to stop me from getting baptized? And Philip's like, nothing. Let's let's just go find some water, you know? So they get down in the water and he baptizes this Ethiopian eunuch. And I don't know if you know, but the church in Ethiopia is still there 2,000 years later, probably because that eunuch took it to them. He was like, what's to keep me from getting baptized? Nothing but the fact that there's no water around. So they found water and they got baptized. Well, guys, there's water here. You can get baptized today. If you've believed over the last few months, over the last few weeks, or even just today, you can get baptized. There's no reason to wait. Because listen, delayed obedience is disobedience. At least that's what I tell my kids because that's what we read in the Bible. Don't delay that. If you've believed, get baptized today. We're gonna have prayer counselors out in the hallway back there to talk to you about this if that's a decision you've made. So we wanna make sure that you understand the gospel and what this baptism symbol means for you. But again, that's the only prerequisite is belief. So I hope that as I pray in just a second, you'll just take that opportunity to walk back there and respond today. Because listen, the gospel demands a response and I'm gonna call all of us to respond here in just a moment. We're gonna respond in one of three ways. Well, maybe all three really is what we should do. 
prayer, praise, and practice. We want to pray and ask God to reveal to us how this message applies to our lives today. Are we trying to make a point? Are we trying to make a difference? Do we understand? Have we internalized what he's preached to us today through his word? Then we want to praise God for what he's done in the gospel, right? We celebrate. But then we also want to practice obedience. And so for you, if you just believed, practicing obedience means baptism for you today. For the rest of us, we're going to take communion together here later on after we worship, after we see baptisms. So let me pray for us, close out our time, and then I'm going to give you some directions and we're going to celebrate what God's doing and we're going to respond together. Let's do that. God, I just pray that today you will help us to respond to your word appropriately. You've told us some heavy things here, really, that we have the opportunity to tell other people that they belong to the family if they'll simply believe. And God, I just pray that you'll give us the the boldness to do that today. As we leave out of here, God, help us to respond in obedience by going and sharing our story to give a defense of the hope that we have. God, I pray that you'll make our lives as a church intriguing to people around us, in our workplace, in our neighborhood or our apartment complex or in the gym that we go to or in the restaurants that we frequent or whatever it is, God, please make the people of Redemption Church intriguing to this broken and dark city. And God, I pray that you'll use us to see these 500 salvations over the next five years. Please, God, please, we're begging you to do that. Not for our sake, but for your name's sake, God. You are worthy. You deserve it all. You deserve worshipers all over the world. You deserve all praise, all glory, all honor. God, this is just us trying to move that needle just a little bit, preparing the jars for you to work in a miraculous way. So we ask that you would, God. We know you want to. So please use us today. Make our hearts ready for that. And God, I pray that if there's somebody here who has just believed in you, that they'll take that step of baptism today. God, please don't let them wait and be disobedient in that. Please give them a desire to follow you wholeheartedly. Help them to bow their heart to you completely today and to start with this outward symbol of the inward reality that you've done a miracle in them. God, I pray for that today. I'm thankful for the other baptism that we have today. Thank you, God, so much that you've been working in our children's ministry. Thank you so much, God, that you're working in these little ones' hearts. And I pray, God, that you'll bless them, protect them, God, as they grow up and mature in the faith. Please help them to mature in their faith well here. Help them to persevere even in the midst of suffering for their faith. And God, I pray that they'll take it seriously and that they'll be reverent and gentle in the way that they live out their behavior as a Christian. But God, help them to never forget who they belong to. It is their parents and it is their church here. It is, uh, you know, all of those things, but really it's the belonging to Jesus for them. And God, I pray that they'll internalize that so much and they'll keep their eyes on eternity and that you'll use this next generation in such a way, God, that we've never seen before in our, our country's history. I pray for a greater revival, God, over the next five years here in the United States than has ever been seen before through the coming generations, Father. I could go on and keep praying to you, God, because I love you and I'm so thankful. But I'll end it here. Thank you, God, for all you do. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks so much for listening with us today. We hope that it was an encouragement to you. But you know, we don't see this as a replacement for gathering with other believers in a local church context. So if you don't have a local church, we would encourage you to plug in with one wherever you are. And if you're in Roanoke, Virginia, we'd love to invite you to plug in with us here at Redemption Church. And you're welcome anytime to gather with us. But you can check us out online at our our website, redemptionroanoke.com. You can look for other content or resources there. But thanks again for listening.